Hello, and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm your host, Eric Sintel. I had an interview scheduled to record for this week's episode, but a scheduling issue came up and uh, that fell through. So uh, last episode, I tried to ruin the entire Bible. In this episode, I'm going to zoom in and try to ruin Genesis. I have ruined Genesis in the past. Um, One morning at church, I saw this young lady. uh, She was a teenager and she was attending a, a private Christian school. And I noticed she looked very downcast in our church foyer, you know, just visibly upset and just down. And so I I just kind of wandered over and asked, you know, hey, how are you doing? How's everything going? She said, well, school is going really poorly right now. Um, There's this boy, he's not a believer, but his parents make him go to the, the private Christian school with me and the other students. And he's just always going out of his way to argue with us and the teachers and make sarcastic comments about the Bible and about Genesis and how it's all not true. And it's just really uh, making school not fun. And so I I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, if it makes you feel any better, um, I don't interpret Genesis literally. I interpret it symbolically. And when I interpret it symbolically, I find that I get a lot more meaning and wisdom out of it. And her eyes just lit up, her face brightened, and she said, exactly, yes. And I I really like that story because it shows, you know, the power of giving people permission to view the Bible in different ways, the permission to recognize that it's okay to view it in different ways and view it in the way that is most powerful and meaningful for you. And it's also, you know, shows the power of giving someone language to describe what they're experiencing and what they're um, seeing in their interpretation or their reading of the Bible or their experience of the Holy Spirit or God or the church. You know, giving people language to name things and describe things is just, it's often a very powerful thing. And that story, I think, illustrates that. And and the look on that teenage girl's face, (laughs) as I said that, I think illustrates it very powerfully. So when I say that I interpret Genesis symbolically, um, what I really mean is that I don't view Genesis as security camera footage of creation. I don't view it as a science text. I view it as a myth. And sometimes people get very nervous or anxious when you start calling Genesis a myth um, because we in our Western modern culture associate the word myth with just made up stories. We think of Hercules or Zeus or Athena or Hera or Ares. We think of these Greek and Roman gods and goddesses doing sometimes some really questionable stuff. Uh, Sometimes, you know, these stories about the Greek and Roman uh, gods and goddesses illustrate anything but moral behavior. So (laughs) we, in our context, we hear the word myth and we hear someone say, oh, that's just a made up story that likely involves some really raunchy and or violent behavior. Um, And that makes us nervous then when we hear someone say Genesis is a myth. But this reflects, I think, our misunderstanding of the word myth. Um, A myth is something that gets at a deep truth, a profound wisdom in a way that 
sticking to the facts just simply could not accomplish. Um, so a myth is not false, it's not made up. A myth is true in the sense that it is getting at a truth, a wisdom. And it's doing that through storytelling, through symbolic means, through imagery. Um, Jesus taught in parables, not, you know, uh, thesis-driven essays. <laughs> you know, he told stories with images and characters and plot conflicts and complications. And those stories, through those devices, conveyed a deep truth or significant meaning to help us better understand God or the kingdom of heaven or how to live our lives following Jesus. And so um, to say that Genesis is a myth is not to demean Genesis, but it's actually to elevate it. It's to say, I have good news. It's not a science textbook. It's not just facts and details, but it is deep, profound truth and wisdom that we can uh, apply to our lives generation after generation. It never gets old, it never gets stale. It's always relevant to us as human beings and as followers of Jesus Christ. Here's an example from American history to illustrate what I'm talking about. So if you ask any American, when was the Declaration of Independence signed? Um, they'll say July 4th, 1776. And if you ask them how it was signed, well, they'll probably say, well, you know, Thomas Jefferson and the other 55 men who signed it all gathered together and read the draft, agreed on it, and signed it. Um, and they might even, you know, reference or in their minds imagine the famous painting of that scene. There's a giant mural on the, um, in the Capitol building, the United States Capitol building that depicts Thomas Jefferson turning in his draft of the Declaration of Independence, and he's surrounded by all the other signers of the Declaration of Independence. And um, this, this painting is often reproduced in U.S. history textbooks. And so we have this idea, this understanding of the Declaration of Independence and its signing that is not based in any historical fact or evidence. <laughs> that is not how it happened at all. <laughs> in reality, uh, the, found, the Declaration signers were scurrying in and out of Philadelphia over a period of several weeks, dodging the British Army. And so, you know, one person would come in and maybe sign it late afternoon and then get the heck out of town. Another, you know, two or three people might come in in the middle of the night and sign it and then get out of town. Um, and this went on for weeks, and the declaration wasn't officially signed and approved until sometime in mid-August. And so we have this myth of America's founding, of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And this myth was created through art and through storytelling and through reproducing that art and storytelling in our history books. <laughs> and, um, and then drilling it into kids' heads that the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776, um, and then created a national holiday on July 4th to celebrate that. You know, so we have built up in America this very rich, detailed, elaborate myth that gets presented as historical fact when it's not. 
at all. <laughs> so does this mean that America wasn't founded? Well, of course not. Does it mean that the founders weren't unified in their sense of purpose? Of course not. Um, and yet, and so we've created this myth to depict the founding in a way that emphasizes the founders' unity, in a way that emphasizes kind of the grandness of this uh, new experiment that they decided to launch in, you know, democratic, uh, in a democratic republic. And so we have some, a myth that tells us something deeply true about our founding, about ourselves, even though the story itself and the myth itself is not factually true. So to say that Genesis is a myth is to say that it tells us some really deep truths about ourselves as humans and about God, even though it's not scientific facts or security camera footage of creation. How do we know that the ancient authors of Genesis did not have, you know, access to some kind of security camera footage of creation? How do we know that God didn't inspire them with you know, putting in their heads exactly what happened as it happened. Well, we know that because when we look at the text of Genesis itself, Genesis itself tells us that the biblical authors who wrote this down did not understand it to be science and did not intend it to be viewed as science. Um, and to really see that, we have to look at the text, but we also have to try to learn from experts in the ancient Hebrew language and ancient Hebrew culture. So um, before I get into that though, I want to kind of talk a little bit about where this idea of interpreting Genesis literally even came from to begin with. So in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there were some German scholars who began to really critically interpret the Bible. And by critically, I don't mean they were criticizing it, but rather they were trying to analytically think about and interpret and understand the Bible, just like any other ancient manuscript or literary text. And so they were really beginning to investigate and examine the biblical text in a new way because they were looking at it in a more scholarly, analytical kind of way, not to criticize it, but to better understand it on its own terms as an ancient text. Um, and in response to this German criticism, sometimes called German higher criticism, in response to that, um, a lot of people decided, oh, this is really kind of threatening because this is undermining looking at the Bible as this special sacred text. And so you had a little bit of a response to that of, well, gosh, we need to double down on a more literal fundamentalist interpretation of the scriptures. Then the Scopes monkey trial threw gasoline on that reaction. So in the Scopes monkey trial, um, a high school biology te teacher named John Thomas Scopes got in legal trouble for teaching evolution in his classroom and, and from his biology textbook. And then in the ensuing trial, um, which came to be known as the Scopes monkey trial, on one side you had uh, William Jennings Bryan, 
who had ran for president three different times in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he was a national celebrity. Like he was, you know, a big deal at the time. And he was arguing along with the prosecution. And then on the opposite side, you had Clarence Darrow. And this case in part made Darrow's reputation and career but he was also a big deal as far as you know lawyers go. He was kind of a celebrity lawyer along with William Jennings Bryan. So you have two celebrity lawyers and incredibly, William Jennings Bryan takes the stand <laughs> to be questioned by Clarence Darrow as part of the defense of Scopes, the biology teacher. And Clarence Darrow uh, ends up kind of putting creationism and a literal interpretation of the Bible on trial through his questioning of William Jennings Bryan. You know, he asked him questions like, you know, if you believe that Genesis should be interpreted literally, well, where exactly did Cain and Abel get their wives from, right? Because we're told that Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, but then we also find out later that they had wives but we're never told where they came from. Where'd they get their wives? And William Jennings Bryan couldn't answer. He was like, I have no idea. Um, and so that's just one of many different lines of questioning that made a literal fundamentalist interpretation of Genesis as you know, fact, science, um, security camera footage of creation, an objective history. It made that literalist interpretation just seem ridiculous. And, you know, not to get too far off base here, but when humans experience cognitive dissonance, when we become aware that we think something or have a belief or attitude that is dissonant or inconsistent <laughs> with logic, with reason, with the evidence, or with morality, or our understanding of ourselves as smart, reasonable, moral people, we get very, very uncomfortable, you know? And it's like a sensation, you know? If you um, pay attention to those moments of cognitive dissonance, it's like an itch in your brain. It's really like a, an uncomfortable sensation. And so you try to get rid of it. You try to rationalize away this inconvenient information that um, is bringing to your attention this dissonance or this disharmony. Or you just get angry and denigrate or attack the source of the information, you know, in this case, maybe Clarence Darrow or science and evolution. Um, or you could choose the more mature option of updating your beliefs, um, admitting you were mistaken or you were wrong. Well, as you might guess, <laughs> the the research in psychology and cognitive dissonance shows that most of the time humans do not choose to update their beliefs and say, gosh, I was mistaken. I need to change my thinking. Most of the time we rationalize things or we explain things away um, or and we maybe even double down, triple down on our previous beliefs. Um, and we engage in a lot of confirmation bias where we pay a lot of close attention to the information that confirms what we already think or believe or want to think or believe. And we completely ignore and discount any contradictory information. So these are 
you know, very human tendencies. These are things that we all sometimes do to varying degrees. And as you might predict, um, or as you might know from, you know, the history that I'm talking about, in the wake of the Scopes Monkey Trial, people who had a literalist in interpretation of the Bible and Genesis in particular, um, really doubled down on that and retreated into very insular communities. This is sometimes known as the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian. This isn't my area of expertise, but I'm trusting the historians who are experts in this period uh, when they say that after the Scopes Monkey trial, you had this fundamentalist modernist controversy or split where fundamentalists who had this literal interpretation of the scriptures in Genesis really retreated into the, these insular communities, if you will, and they really stopped engaging with the broader culture and the cultural conversation. And they basically just acted like or pretended like evolution and, and uh, science didn't exist, at least as far as it went, as far as like human origins and cosmic earth origins were concerned. And the historians also say that that reaction or that move occurred partially because these more modernist Christians, um, you know, mainline Protestants often, who um, fancied themselves smarter and more modern and more hip and more with it, um, really looked down on the fundamentalists and didn't make a secret of mocking them and critiquing them as backwards and, um, and just out of touch and out of sync with the times. And so it's kind of understandable that people would say, well, okay, if you're gonna make fun of us and talk down to us like this, we're just going to go, you know, over here and hang out among ourselves, <laughs> um, you know. And so you have a lot of private Christian schools start to spring up. You have, you know, a lot of segregation in terms of church denominations and church gatherings and things like that. Um, and so this fundamentalist modernist split and controversy is still with us today in the sense that we still have a fair amount of controversy over creationism versus evolution, um, literal interpretation of the Bible versus symbolic interpretation. Um, and so where I'm coming from with this is this history is really unfortunate because it has put people in this position, this false dilemma, this false either or choice, and this really difficult position of, well, I wanna believe in the Bible, but science says something different. How can I reconcile these two? They, they seem completely irreconcilable. And this is a false dilemma, a false choice, because the reality is, is that when we view and interpret and understand the Bible in light of what those German higher critics were telling us, and in light of what modern biblical scholars tell us, we can see, oh, these are not you know, Genesis is not meant to be viewed literally. It's not meant to be a science text. It is meant to be a theological argument. It's meant to be symbolic. It's meant to be a myth. It's meant to be a story that gets at this deeper and more profound truth about God and the cosmos and humanity and the relationship among all those things. It's not meant to say, and this is exactly how God created everything. 
Um, so when we look at the context of this, of Genesis chapter one, we can start to see that. But first let's tease apart what we mean by historical context and social context and cultural context and how those things play a part in communicating. So if I were to say, you know, may the force be with you, most people in American, modern American culture are going to know exactly what I'm talking about when I'm referencing Star Wars. Even people who have never seen Star Wars are familiar with that phrase, may the force be with you, because it's become just a part of our culture. If I say something like, beam me up, Scotty, that's maybe less commonly known and less familiar within our culture. You're going to have some people that you know are clueless what that means or where that's coming from. But you're going to have a large number of people who maybe are very familiar with that because they've watched Star Trek. Or even if they haven't watched Star Trek, they're maybe somewhat familiar with that. Uh, or live long and prosper. That might be an even better example from Star Trek. Um, a more popular cultural phrase that people who've never seen Star Trek are nonetheless familiar with because it's just part of our culture. And so if I want to make a point or if I want to communicate something, I can use those common shared cultural references um, and I can, you know, pack a lot of information into a very short phrase. Or I can evoke a certain kind of emotion or attitude or understanding by using that phrase. Those phrases, may the force be with you, and, you know, beam me up, Scotty, or live on and prosper, those phrases were not available for use prior to 1977, when the first Star Wars movie came out, and 1966, when uh, Star Trek TV show came out. Okay, so if I tried to say to someone in the 1950s, may the force be with you, they would be super confused. <laughs> if I said to someone in the 1950s, you know, beam me up, Scotty, they would have no clue what I was trying to say and what, that, what those words meant. Okay, so we face a similar kind of situation when we try to read the Bible because the biblical authors had available to them certain language and imagery and understandings that we do not have available to us. Those, um, some of the words and images and uh, meanings that they used have been lost over time. And as our you know, cultures and societies have changed so incredibly from the ancient Near East. Um, and our languages have changed, you know? I mean, we're talking about ancient Hebrew, ancient uh, common Greek, not modern English. Um, you know, modern English has evolved incredibly since, you know, the time of Shakespeare. And English at the time of Shakespeare had evolved dramatically compared to the time of Geoffrey Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. And that English had evolved quite a bit from Beowulf um, and from, you know, older texts. So we have um, just a massive evolution in language, culture, society, history, science, and our understanding of things um, from the ancient biblical authors to us today. So there's this giant disconnect between the language and images and understanding that they had in their minds that they intended for people to get 
versus what we as modern readers have available to us and what we might get or impose on the biblical text. For example, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? When we as modern people read that, we think in the beginning, a fixed starting point in time. But the ancient Hebrew, according to Tim Mackey, would be better translated as way back when, as opposed to a distinct, definite, you know, moment. Um, when we read created the heavens and the earth, well, we think about space and the cosmos and stars and nebula and galaxies. And when we think of the earth, we think when we read the earth, we think of this sphere floating in space and the remarkable um, coincidence of being just close enough to the sun to be warm enough, but not too close to get burned up. And, you know, how we're able to support, have a planet that supports life and complex life just by virtue of this Goldilocks cosmic coincidence. I mean, we think about those kinds of things. The ancient Israelites who wrote and read and shared this we're thinking about the sky above their heads and the dirt under their feet, <laughs> right? Because they didn't have available to them the James Webb Space Telescope. They didn't have available to them the space shuttle floating or, you know, orbiting Earth and photo, uh, uh, astronauts literally snapping photos of Earth. They didn't have that imagery available to them. Um, and so when they wrote these words, they had something completely different in mind than what we have, think they meant when we read these words in our English translations. Our world is so different from their world that a biblical scholar named John Walton wrote a, a whole series of books called the Lost World series, the first of which was the Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate. Okay, so this is... Um, I'm sorry, this is the second in the Lost World series. But John Walton in this series, The Lost World, makes the case that the world of the ancient biblical authors and their audience, their intended readers, is so radically different from our world, our context, that their world is essentially lost to us. And we have to work really hard to try to understand their world and their context so that we can begin to grasp what they meant, did mean, and did not mean by these words in the ancient Hebrew that are then translated into, um, in some cases, Greek and in the Septuagint, and in some cases, the state in the Hebrew, and then that got translated into Latin, and then that got translated into German, and that got translated into English, right? I mean, you can see how hard we have to work, how much we need to rely upon experts in those ancient languages and ancient uh, historical, social, and cultural contexts like John Walton, like Tim Mackey, to really get at what the biblical authors had in their minds and what they intended and did not intend. Okay, so let's get into Genesis 1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So we're talking about the sky above our heads and the uh, dirt under our feet. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now because of the history I described earlier with the Scopes Monkey Trial and German Higher Criticism, we have a tendency as modern Western readers to view this as a description of God creating little packets of photons that make up light. Um, we have a tendency to view, you know, God as, you know, somehow shaping the land masses in some way or another. But according to John Walton and Tim Mackey and in uh, and, the ancient context of this passage, what the ancient authors were getting at is not necessarily a description of how God created, but more a description of how God ordered creation. So you start off with this formless, empty void, and God's spirit is hovering there. So God is a part of creation in some sense, and God then begins to shape creation. Um, he says, let there be light, and there was light. So it's not that he's necessarily creating little packets of photon, but he is ordering the creation that's there. You know, Genesis is often described as creation out of nothing. Um, and, and I can certainly see that argument when you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But there's also an argument to be made that this is not actually creation out of nothing, that there is this formless, empty void, these chaos waters, this, you know, surface of the deep. And then God comes along and orders this. And he separates, you know, the light and the dark, and he orders these things. He creates an order to time. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So again, you can see from the ancient Israelite perspective that the important thing is not, you know, how God created everything. It's how God ordered things. It's how God um, established order from the chaos of creation and gave us names and language to help structure our understanding of that order. Um, and there's also um, another aspect to this as well. In other ancient creation usually, almost not usually, always, <laughs> to my knowledge, there is always violence. So the Babylonian creation story, the Sumerian creation myth, the Egyptian, you know, all of these other ancient Near Eastern creation myths involve one god fighting and attacking other gods and killing them and then using their carcass to create the world. Um, in the Greek mythology, you know, there are multiple generations of gods and titans and they are 
warring and fighting with each other until finally Zeus is smart enough and technologically advanced enough because he's got the Thunderbolt, this new weapon, to put an end to the fighting and establish dominance. And so you have in these other ancient Near Eastern myths order from chaos, but the order is created through violence, through a lot of blood and gore and a lot of sheer power and strength. Whereas here in Genesis, God creates through speaking. He creates not through violence, but through his voice, through speaking and through, um, you know, you might, might call it his love even. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Okay, so pause again here. Um, again, you see this continued theme of God ordering creation. Um, but also, you see something very subtle here that, you know, don't, it, it cannot possibly, it cannot possibly occur to any modern person to see this. You have to do the, the work of historical uh, anthropology, historical study, to even begin to see this. We know that the version of the Hebrew Scriptures that we have in our modern Bibles, our modern Old Testaments, did not exist or come into its final form until about 486 BCE. So these stories certainly existed in oral traditions. Many of them were even written down prior to then. But the final form of the Hebrew Scriptures that make up our Old Testament didn't exist until 486 BC, after Babylonian exile. The Babylonians had gods and goddesses. They had they worshipped the stars. They worshipped the moon, the sun. <laughs> and so we see here this very subtle theological argument. Yeah, your Babylonian gods and goddesses are real. We're not. We'll give you that. But our god is the one who put them there. <laughs> Our God is in charge of them. He's the boss of them. Um, and that is something that as a modern reader, I mean, how could you possibly interpret that or infer that in the text in front of you? Um, but when you learn from biblical scholars who um, can point out the context of the manuscript and when it was created and some of the concerns of the people who were doing the creating and the editing, um, and then you, you can start to see some of those parallels there and some of those really subtle things. So again, Genesis 1 is not, in the author's minds, intended to be a scientific description or account of creation, but it is intended to be a theological argument about how 
Our God, Yahweh, orders creation, not through violence, but through just simply speaking it. And he put these lesser Babylonian gods in their place. He's the boss of them. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. We, you know, have the vegetation, we have animals to their kinds, right? We have God ordering creation. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, etc. Um, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that move along the ground. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here we have God creating you know, the earth, the seas, the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, um, vegetation, animals, sea life, marine life, and then at the end, humans. And he gives them dominion over them. He tells them to subdue the earth. And according to Tim Mackey and John Walton, this is not, well, you just rule over and exploit nature all you want, but rather this is more of a stewardship. You're, you're subduing the earth by making it fruitful and productive, by um, agriculture by cattle farming and uh, shepherding. So to subdue the earth in the ancient op biblical authors' minds is not to you know drill for oil and exploit the resources as much as you please because God said you could or should. Rather, it is to more of a stewardship of God's creation. We're invited to be co-rulers of creation. And we are made in God's image, in the image of God he made us. So, <laughs> in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, um, kings were made in God's image. Kings were God. They were God's representative on earth. Um, and some even went so far as to say, well, I, you know, I am God. I'm, we are one and the same. I'm not just the representative but I am God. There's effectively no difference between me and God. And everyone else was lesser. And so it was okay for them to be subjugated to the king and the ruling class. It was okay for many of them to be slaves and oppressed. And what we see in Genesis 1 is, no, every human is made in the image of God. Not just the king of Babylon, but all of us. Even us Jewish exiles, we're all made in the image of God, and we all possess inherent worth and dignity for that reason. We are all called to co-rule over creation, not just the kings and queens. We're all called to help steward and make productive 
the world in which we live. So toward the end of Genesis 1, you know, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. This starts Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, so this has been, you know, one of those weird controversies where literal interpreters say, well, you know, it says very straightforwardly, very plainly that God created everything in seven days. Um, and your science is telling us the earth is 4.6 billion years old and the universe is 13 point something billion years old. Um, and one of them has to be right. One has to be wrong. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It has to be right. Science has to be wrong. And you have a lot of elaborate apologetics to try to explain why the Bible is right and science is wrong. You have people uh, insisting that just science is flat out wrong in its dating um, and the Bible is right. And, you know, people like Ken Ham and the uh, Creation Museum in Kentucky. But then you also have people will say, well, a day is an age. It's not, you know, a literal 24 hour day, but it could be referring to a broad uh, geologic age. I don't think the biblical authors cared one bit. <laughs> I don't think the people who told the story of Genesis 1 and passed this oral tradition down and the people who eventually wrote it down, I don't think they cared one bit whether God created the, everything in seven days or, uh, or actually technically six days and rested on the seventh. I don't think they cared one bit if that happened that way or if it took billions of years. I think what they cared about was the order and structure and rhythm of the creation because they wanted that to mirror the order and rhythm of their weekly lives. They wanted a creation narrative or myth that contributed to and reinforced their weekly rhythm of working six days a week and then resting on the Sabbath. And to this day, modern Judaism, uh, observant Jews take the Sabbath very seriously. And they have very elaborate um, customs and traditions about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And, and so um, there are, you know, there are good reasons, I think, to view this as, again, a theological argument. <laughs> you know, why do we do the Sabbath? Well, because, you know, God... We establish this in God's ordering of creation and the ordering of human life. You know, God himself follows this kind of rhythm and pattern. Now, before I move on, um, I have to address Genesis chapter 1, verses 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Um, as mentioned in my interview with Austin Hartke, uh, author of Transforming, um, that verse gets used a lot to attack or critique trans people. God created us male and female, as though that's all that exists, right? But as Austin pointed out, and as uh, Natalie Grace Drew, a, a much earlier interview, but also a trans woman, um, she also pointed out that this is more of a poetic device. 
you know, throughout Genesis chapter one, we're seeing what God creates, what he orders. And it doesn't mention anything about the kind of in-betweens, you know, like the estuary where you've got salt water and fresh water mixing at the mouth of this river, um, or, you know, the swamp that's, you know, both, um, you know, it's both water and land at the same time. That's kind of weird, right? And so this is another poetic device where, you know, we see throughout Genesis 1, um, the poetic device of, you know, God created this and that. But what is implied or understood is that he also created everything in between. Um, and also, by the way, you know, as Austin Hartke pointed out, it doesn't say, the text doesn't say God, you know, male and female, he created them. And that means X, X chromosome, XY chromosome, um, and uh, traditional modern Western standards of male masculinity and femininity, right? It doesn't go into that kind of detail at all. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, room for interpretation there to say, well, this isn't apparently even attempting to specify exactly what male and female or masculine and feminine mean. It's not even attempting to address the range of what we see in creation. Um, maybe we shouldn't uh, overinterpret and overburden this by making it say more than it says or mean more than it means. Maybe we instead allow that space for different interpretations, multiple interpretations to say, well, we're all created in God's image. Um, and maybe that means that that includes trans people too. Maybe that includes people who understand themselves as non-binary or men who um, have a more feminine presentation or uh, gender identity or women who have a more masculine understanding of themselves and present in that way. Um, bottom line is, you know, for me, when I put things like Genesis 1, 27 in conversation with what I have learned about the incredible challenges trans people face and the way that transitioning saves their lives often, it's really hard for me to say, well, but this verse says, um, and, and instead it's much easier for me to say, well, you're telling me that you were going to commit suicide if you didn't transition. And then you transitioned and now um, you're a better parent and your kids are happier because you're coming home and you're present and playing with them and engaged with them instead of like crying in your bedroom because of your overwhelming depression and sadness. Um, you know, I, I just I just can't say that they're not made in the image of God. I can't say that um, they shouldn't be pursuing what gives life because the gospel and Jesus Christ are life-giving. So going into Genesis 2, the authors of Genesis seem to make a special effort to tap us on the shoulder, whisper in our ear, this is not security camera footage, this is not a science book, because we read in Genesis 2 verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And if you just stop there, you might think, okay, so they're summing up what they just told us. Oh, no, no, they are introducing a second creation account. Um, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, 
and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. The streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And in my footnote in my student Bible, uh, the man, is, the Hebrew word for the man is Adam, which we transliterate or translate as Adam. <laughs> and so we take a he, ancient Hebrew word to refer to humanity, mankind, and we translate it in our modern English Bibles often as Adam, the guy, you know, that specific person. And that's what we understand when we read that. Um, and without a good study, stu study Bible or student Bible with footnotes, you'd never know. And even with the footnotes, you got to stop and think and puzzle it out. Like, huh, that's weird. Um, and so we have Genesis 1, where God creates everything leading up to humans. And then at the end, creates Adam and Eve, humanity and life. Not that guy and that woman, but mankind and then the life force, you know, uh, animating humankind. Um, that's what the ancient Hebrew is telling us. And then in Genesis 2, it reverses. No shrub of the field had yet appeared. No plant of the field had yet sprung up. There was no man to work the ground. God made the man, man mankind, right? And then the, guard plant, the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden where he put the man he formed. Um, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. There it was separated into four headwaters. Um, and there's a little bit of geography there. Uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. Okay, so let me get this straight, Genesis. <laughs> Right? You have two very different creation accounts. You have Genesis 1 culminating in humanity. You have Genesis 2 starting with humanity and going out of its way to say there wasn't anything else first, at least no vegetation or plants or trees. Um, and, and so it's like the biblical authors decided we've got these two different traditions and we can't agree on which one to include or maybe we don't even care to agree on which one to include because we're going to include them both why wouldn't we and so for us as modern people our tendency is well no we got to get to the bottom of it and figure it out <laughs> for ancient people it was more about preserving their multiple traditions their multiple understandings and viewpoints um, and so they had no problem having these two very different contradictory accounts of creation in the same book um, but then for us to come along 2,000, 5,000 years later and say, well, no, it's, this has got to be understood literally and we've got to figure out a way to reconcile these two completely contradictory accounts. I mean, we are in, imposing our view on the Bible as opposed to taking the Bible on its own terms. And so sometimes people, I think, get anxious or nervous about or even outright um, upset about a symbolic interpretation of Genesis um, because they view that as disrespecting scripture. But in my opinion, it's really respecting scripture to try to understand it on its own terms and what the original authors likely intended 
versus imposing on it what I think it should mean or what I wanted to say. Um, okay, so continuing into Genesis 2. Um, so the Lord God has put Adam or humanity and Eve uh, in, in the Garden of Eden and he creates Eve to be a helpmate. Okay, and so this is interesting because it's not uh, this idea of a helpmate is not just a helper, but it's really a life partner. It's like someone that can do something for Adam that he cannot do for himself. And you can see here from a Christian interpretation, you could see maybe a foreshadowing of Jesus, who's going to do for humanity what humanity can't do for itself. So the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both uh, nude and they felt no shame. Okay, so this is Genesis uh, chapter 2 verse 24 is sometimes used as a clobber passage to argue why uh, same-sex relationships are wrong because they violate God's design. In my opinion, that is, again, imposing too much on this text. It's overburdening it, over-interpreting it, because it doesn't say that. All it says is, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. I think this is describing sexual desire. It's explaining why people want to have sex. Um, you'll become one flesh. You know, we've spiritualized that uh, based on Paul's writings. Could have a more straightforward meaning if you, you know, use your imagination. And so this might be another one of those times that we as modern people have really put much more on this uh, scripture than what the original authors intended and what the scripture can or should support. Um, there's nothing here about marriage is between one man and one woman. It doesn't say anything about that. It just explains sexual desire. Um, and if it does say, if I'm wrong, and it does in fact say, or should be understood as saying, that marriage is between one man and one woman, there are a lot of biblical figures who have more than one wife. <laughs> <laughs> who are in a heap load of trouble. You know, even David, you know, God after man's own heart. You know, Solomon had a whole harem of hundreds of wives, you know, if, if we believe the biblical account. So, um, again, I think that this verse can easily be overinterpreted and overburdened with more than it can support. And then in chapter 3, we get the fall of man. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were in the nude. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, of the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, "Where are you?" He answered, "I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid." And he said, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from?" The man said, "The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it." Then the Lord God said to the woman, "Who? What is this that you have done?" The woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." So the Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed you are, and you will crawl in your belly, etc." Um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Um, the offspring of the woman, he will crush your head; you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, "I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband; he will rule over you." To Adam he said, "Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Though through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. I will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground." Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And then Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. Um, and in my、uh, footnote here, it says Eve probably means living or life. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, "The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever." So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Okay, so、um, I read from that at length because it's such a familiar story, but we maybe sometimes forget or overlook some of the details because we're so familiar with it. We think we understand it, know it so well.、Um, so there's a lot going on here, and. I have evolved quite a bit in my view of Genesis chapter three and the fall of man.、Um, so you know, Tim Mackey has been a big influence for me on this. You know, of the Bible Project、um, and his other podcast, exploring my strange Bible. And、uh, Tim Mackey has described you know the tree of knowing good and evil、um, as good and evil.、Um, But later he evolved in his interpretation, and he shared that he thinks the word,、uh, the Hebrew word for evil, really is better translated as just bad. So it's not evil as you know Satan or demons or something, but evil is in just bad, just negative, not good. <laughs> and so if you view it that way, it takes a little bit of the,、um, a little bit of the moral judgment or the harshness or the stinging out of the story of the fall of man. Um, but also,、um, why is it that God tells Adam and Eve, or Adam and Eve, or living, don't eat of that tree, don't gain this knowledge of good and bad? He has argued, and I think this is a strong interpretation, that God wants to bring humans to wisdom. But he wants to do it on his process, his timeline, while we trust him in the meantime. And instead, we 
through this temptation, seeing that this is this fruit is good, it's pleasing to the eye. Um, we uh, jump the gun. We try to gain wisdom on our own, right? Because later in the Hebrew scriptures, in like Proverbs especially, wisdom is described as a good thing. Knowing good and bad is described as a good thing. Um, and so why would God place this good thing, the knowledge of good and bad, or this wisdom, right within our reach and then tell us not to reach out and grab it or take it? Well, because he wants us to trust his definition of good and bad, he wants us to trust him and uh, follow his will and his guidance as he gradually brings us into that knowledge and wisdom so that we can discern accurately and effectively. I think that's a pretty strong interpretation. But I have uh, more recently come to think maybe that's another over-interpretation. Maybe we're overburdening Genesis 3 quite a bit. Um, it is possible to also read Genesis 3 as a story about sexual desire and temptation, about growing up. So if you stop and think about it, you know, when do you become an adult? It seems like in a lot of cultures, you become an adult about the time that you become sexually mature, about the time that you are considered by society, by your elders, physically, mentally, and socially capable of producing offspring and raising them. I mean, in previous generations in America, if you were 16 years old, 17 years old, you were a full-grown man or a full-grown woman. If you were 14 years old, you were a full-grown woman and ready to be married. <laughs> um, you know, I, this is, gosh, this isn't that long ago. I mean, the early 1900s, you know, about a century ago, um, my great-grandparents were, I think, 20, 20 and 15 when they got married. Right? And no one thought that was weird. <laughs> you know, if anything, my grandfather was a little old to finally be settling down. Um, and so today, if a 20-year-old man and a 15-year-old girl got married, it would be literally illegal, right? It would be statutory rape unless the parents of the girl signed off on it. Um, and if they did, that would be controversial. People would be looking at that side-eyed, you know, what? Um, what is this weirdness? And so... <laughs> And so things have changed so dramatically. Well, why? Well, because in our modern culture, by golly, you need to get a college education or you need to at least get, you know, a technical education or you at least need, you know, to be well-established in some kind of uh, financially secure job or employment and get some work experience before you can financially support yourself, much less a child. And so we have uh, in our culture now, people are delaying having children until their late 20s, early 30s, even mid-30s. Um, whereas in previous generations, that was was unthinkable. I mean, you would never, that, that just wasn't what you did. It wasn't an option or it wasn't thought to be an option. Um, and so may, I, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here because this isn't my area of expertise. I'm not an anthropologist. But it seems like in most cultures, um, you have these rites of passage um, 
where you know you might have like an official ceremony where um, now this 12 year old boy is suddenly a man because he had his uh, bar mitzvah um, or you have uh, this you know 14 year old um, Maasai warrior who's all of a sudden a man because he went through this particular ritual uh, to have some scars literally uh, cut into his forehead and now he's a man. Um, well, what coincides with those things? Well, you're entering puberty or you're into puberty. Um, and, and so it seems to me that maybe, just maybe, uh, Genesis 3 is more about a story of young people discovering sex, <laughs> right? Remember at the very end of Genesis 2, this is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So we have at the end of Genesis 2 an explanation of sexual desire. In Genesis 3, we have a whole narrative or story um, structured on top of that where you have this knowledge of good and bad. You have this knowledge that you gain when you become sexually active. You have this knowledge that you um, become acculturated into about the time that you enter puberty and wake up to sexual desire and begin to understand human relationships and life in a whole different way, a whole different level of complexity. But along with that, you got to grow up. You got to start farming. You got to start raising livestock. You got to start doing a lot more work. Um, when you give birth, it's going to be painful bummer you know um, you're kicked out of the garden of eden where uh you're kicked out of childhood where everything is fun and pleasant and uh, not nearly as demanding and now you're an adult and now you are expected to contribute uh to the family and to society in a whole different way what a bummer <laughs> can we go back to the garden <laughs> can we go back to childhood and that carefree existence um, or at least relatively carefree compared to what we're dealing with now. Um, this interpretation appeals to me a lot um, because it it just makes a lot of sense with the story itself. And it also unburdens a lot of what we've put on or what I think we as modern Christians have put on to Genesis. Um, I have listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours of Tim Mackey and the Bible Project connecting every single thing in the entire Bible <laughs> back to sinful man's uh, tendency to interpret good and bad or good and evil according to his own um, wisdom instead of trusting God. And that's why every bad thing exists and every awful, horrible thing exists. And I reached, you know, I went through a period of like, gosh, this is so profound. And I had no idea that it could all be explained just this from this one story. <laughs> you know, everything we need to know is on the first two or three pages of the Bible. If we just have eyes to see it. I went from that to, I think we're putting way too much on this <laughs> because, because I think things are maybe a little more complex than that, that the biblical narrative and story is maybe echoing a lot of those themes, but building on those themes, that it's not all, you know, not all that's wrong with the world, <laughs> not all that's wrong with humanity can or should be explained by uh, humans 
screw up when trying to discern wisdom on their own. I mean, yeah, a lot of it, <laughs> but but that can't explain all of it, right? I mean, because we also have systemic injustice, systemic oppression, where people on top of the social hierarchy have a vested interest in maintaining that social hierarchy and exploiting the people lower down on the hierarchy. That's not necessarily a human's um, kings and queens or rulers and elites uh, or empires and their, their ruling classes all twisting their mustache and, and mistakenly discerning what they think is good, but it's really bad because they're not trusting God's definition of good and bad. No, that, that's a more self-interested, a more um, self-aware oppression and injustice that gets uh, justified retroactively as the way things should be or just the way things are. Um, and so I think that all that ails the world and humanity actually runs deeper than what Genesis 3 is telling us. Of course, St. Augustine um, popularized the doctrine of original sin, that this fall of humanity, this original sin or disobedience of humanity somehow tainted all of humanity to be sinful. Um, there's some kind of genetic um, passing down of this original sin. Um, this is obviously not scientific at all. Right? <laughs> and it's also, I don't, not, in my view, it's not what the biblical authors are getting at. I think St. Augustine had a lot of good ideas. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't think original sin was one of them. Um, you know, you want to talk about literal versus symbolic interpretations of the Bible. St. Augustine somewhat famously chose to interpret all of the Bible completely allegorically. Uh, so he made a choice that I'm not going to even consider interpreting Genesis or the rest of the Bible as anything remotely literal or historical or even you know culturally situated, but rather it's just all allegory and symbols. Um, that's taking things too far in that direction too, because we do have some history in the Old Testament. We have some narrative, we have some poetry, we have you know so many different genres, and a lot of it does have a basis in the uh, history and tradition of the Israelite people. Um, and so that's also a mistake to take things too far in that direction, in my opinion. And so if we are to say that the fall of man um, or the original sin of disobedience of Adam and Eve is somehow cosmically, <laughs> uh, spiritually responsible for all that ails humanity, I, I might go so far as to say that we are helping excuse the kind of syst systemic injustice and oppression that people at the top of the, the hierarchy who benefit from that exploitation um, that they enjoy and we're kind of excusing them and their complicity in that. And maybe to some extent we're excusing ourselves and our own complicity in that. Uh, I'm nowhere near the top of our social hierarchy, but I certainly benefit from 
the status quo. I certainly benefit from uh, things as they are currently in a lot of different ways. So I think perhaps we've overburdened Genesis 3 um, by ascribing original sin to this story, by viewing it as a kind of sin or disobedience at all. Maybe it's just a story about entering adulthood and how that kind of sucks. <laughs> and, and maybe um, if we could view it that way, that frees us up to view the rest of the Hebrew scriptures and certainly the New Testament with fresh eyes and on their own terms. And to see, gosh, the prophets are calling out systemic injustice and oppression. Uh, the Gospels and Paul and Peter and the other New Testament letters are calling out systemic injustice and oppression from the Roman Empire and from um, the rulers of the day. And they're not doing that. The prophets and the New Testament are not doing that because they want uh, to connect things back to this theme of, well, humans just, you know, discern good and bad uh, very poorly on their own and need to trust God instead. But they're doing that because they're trying to hold accountable the power structures that create that injustice and oppression and inequality rather than the beloved good community that the Bible presents as an alternative, a community of justice and righteousness. Um, remember, you know, righteousness and justice, the Hebrew word for those words is the same word, right? The same Hebrew word can be translated as righteousness or justice. So when the Bible is calling us to righteousness, it's calling us to justice. And what is justice? Well, it's right relationships with each other. It's a community marked by um, right relationships, by um, everyone having enough, everyone um, helping each other, reinforcing, supporting each other, as opposed to competing with each other and exploiting or oppressing each other. Um, and as we read through the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, we see example after example where God's people get it wrong and they exploit the poor and they oppress um, the marginalized and they benefit from it and then they justify it. Um, and and we see over and over again where we're called to a very different kind of life and a very different kind of society. Um, you know, one that Jesus describes as the kingdom of heaven. So that is my ruining of Genesis 1 through 3. Um, I may at some point come back and ruin the rest of Genesis and, and take a much uh, kind of broader and uh, faster approach. But as I got going there, I got going and uh, had a lot to say about those first three books. Um, so I hope I ruined them for you. I uh, hope I gave you some, if nothing else, some food from thought, some different ways of looking at and thinking about these very familiar stories and scriptures. Um, and, you know, above all, for people who are struggling to make sense of these passages and reconcile them with their life experience, with their understanding of science or history or sociology or anthropology, um, or even just trying to make sense of them on their own terms, because they're kind of confusing. Um, I hope this is helpful. I hope it provides different perspectives and gives permission to have different interpretations that 
can be life-giving, that can be uh, thought-provoking, interesting, engaging. Because at the end of the day, the, the Bible, I believe, is not meant to be a static text that you figure out what it means and you just stick with that forever. It's meant to be a continually engaged, meditated upon kind of text. Through, and through that engagement and meditation, we encounter and experience God. And we encounter and experience other believers here and over thousands of years of commentary and thinking and discussion. So uh, I hope this is just part of that tradition for you. Uh, and as always, thank you for listening. God bless.